Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Leah Parody. I'm a professor of history at Slippery Rock University and the co-creator and co-host of Lies Agreed Upon, a partner podcast of the New Books Network that looks at how Hollywood uses history and uh, is influenced by history. Today, I'm going to be discussing a particularly topical book with its author. I'll be speaking with Tomek Jankowski, He is the director of Paysetter Research for ALM Intelligence. With degrees in history and applied economics, Tomek spent a number of years living in Eastern Europe. And his book is Eastern Europe, Everything You Need to Know About the History and More of a Region that Shaped Our World and Still Does. It was first published by New Europe Books in 2013, and the second edition, published by Academic Studies Press and New Europe Books, came out in late 2021. Given the current events unfolding in Eastern Europe, I thought it would be both interesting and useful to talk to Tomek today about his book and about events in the region. Welcome, Tomek. So happy to be talking to you today. Uh, Thank you, Leah, for having me. I'm I'm really uh, glad to be here. Now, this book is, to say the least, comprehensive. (laughs) It begins with an exploration of the geological and geographical characteristics of the region we know as Eastern Europe. Uh, It discusses the language groups and influences, and then it proceeds to take us on a journey from prehistory through to present day. But for our purposes today, I thought our listeners would find it most interesting and useful for us to focus on more recent history. Now, by that, of course, I mean the last couple of centuries. (laughs) Your book is a really wonderful hybrid. Uh, It can be read all the way through as a fast-paced and easily digestible tour through the history of a region that most people in Western Europe and North America don't know well, or it can be used as a reference text. Uh, A reader can dip into it to find answers to questions. I also really enjoyed the useless trivia and special inserts that are peppered throughout. They, They do a great job of making interesting connections between new information that you're providing and things that the reader might already be familiar with. And the humor in your writing really sets the tone and and makes this huge history of a vast region seem much less intimidating. What prompted you to write the book and to choose such a unique organization and approach? Um, It's, uh, well, first of all, thank you for saying such kind things about the book. Um, I'll also mention that it's a pretty thick book and it's uh, very helpful for holding up the corner of a couch if you get a wobbly couch. Um, but um, uh, I guess the, the impetus began when uh, I was living in Europe and found even worldly and well-traveled Western Europeans who 
to a shocking degree, really knew nothing about Eastern Europe. For them, their knowledge of the world stopped dead at the old Iron Curtain. And so um, this book, I suppose, was born of, especially with the changes in, in 1989 and the collapse of the communist regimes, it was sort of like, uh, when somebody um, reaches out to you and says, I've been doing a DNA test and turns out you and I are siblings. Um, it, it was that type of moment where Western Europe discovered it had a sibling uh, and uh, and it had to learn about that. And so both from for Western Europeans and, of course, for my fellow Native North Americans, um, this was an attempt to explore uh, and explain and introduce a region that is really different, but has also had a big impact that isn't very well understood. And that's the second thing I think that was really important, that I didn't want to just talk about individual countries or peoples or take a state approach uh, and, and go backwards. Um, I wanted to show that the region as a whole really has a history of its own um, and one that really was uh, impactful in shaping Western Europe, as well as even North Africa, the Middle East, uh, and, and, and Central Asia. So it was this in-between region. I mean, it's kind of an odd thing to think about, but Europe is a peninsula, and Western Europe is at the nubby little end of that peninsula. And so uh, Eastern Europe is what connects Western Europe economically, socially, culturally, technologically. It has played a huge role in, in overall European development. And, uh, and so in 1989... Again, when Europe, Western Europe discovered we've got to start dealing with this this other half that we didn't know about or didn't want to know about, um, I wanted to put Eastern Europe into its context and to explain you don't have to be afraid of it. And that was the, the element. Uh, my, my favorite scene is from Mel Brooks' uh, Young Frankenstein when you know, the, the train, this train that somehow has gotten from New York to Transylvania has, uh, you know, pulls into the station. Of course, there's lightning and darkness and, you know, and, and everyone has these strange accents and it's the 19th century. All of a sudden, somehow, you know, these stereotypes that rule. And, and that's one of the funnest things as, as I've given talks about the book. And people have asked, for instance, around Halloween, they'll ask about Transylvania and they'll be shocked to learn that there are young kids going to school with backpacks on their backs and they're bumping into, you know, things as they're walking to school because they're staring at their phones and, you know, listening to music and everything. It's a normal place. It's a real place. And people live there and they've, you know, they have a connection to the world like you do. So that's what this was. It was an attempt to, to sort of provide that first doormat introduction to a region that for me is very interesting. Obviously, I have some personal connections there, but in the larger sense of the world, it plays an important role. Yes, and, and just to uh, to connect with uh, what you were saying about how it's at this uh, crossroads, this, uh, you know, where the peninsula juts out, I think anybody who's played a game of risk in their lives know how hard it is to hold on to hold on to Europe. And, and that's, uh, that's uh, the object lesson uh, right there is that there's this huge uh, porous territory uh, that we've somehow uh, drawn a, a very firm line down that really is not uh, appropriate or real or realistic. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll quote a, uh, one of my Hungarian professors. I, I studied in Hungary for some years. Uh, one of my professors told me, I think it was around 1990 or so, uh, he said something to the effect of, um, you know, those Eastern Europeans who wanted boring, calm, predictable lives 
they emigrated. But those of us who wanted interesting and exciting lives, we stayed. <laughs> well, when I was reading your book, I was repeatedly reminded of a, a famous quote, at least famous to us Canadians, uh, by Pierre Elliott Trudeau about the relationship between Canada and the U.S. Um, during a press conference uh, while he was prime minister, uh, he was visiting Washington uh, at one point, And during this uh, press conference, Trudeau said, living next to you is in some ways like sleeping with an elephant. No matter how friendly and even tempered is the beast, if I can call it that, one is affected by every twitch and grunt. For many of the countries in Eastern Europe, this must also ring really true, except that the elephant hasn't necessarily been the same bedfellow at, at different points, particularly over the last two centuries. The Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, the German Empire, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire have all caused uh, their neighbors to be very nervous and with just cause. Are there common dynamics that you could share with listeners uh, or, or common cultural legacies that we can see today as a result of this uh, historic reality that, that so many of these Eastern European countries, or you might even want to say nations, because some of them were, of course, nations within larger countries. Are, are, there, are there things that they share? Uh, absolutely. And by the way, I'll begin by saying that uh, I heard a version of that same quote, uh, but uh, in impersonal form. Uh, I was at a party uh, about 1990 again in Hungary. This is at a time when Americans were starting to come to Hungary, but Canadians were rare. And one showed up at this party, and all the Hungarians immediately flocked to this person. And of course, they have their stereotypes. And one of them asked this person, this guy, you know, why are Canadians so polite? And his response was brilliant. He said something like, if you lived in a country that had a neighboring country, had a long border with that neighboring country that had a population about 10 times yours, and every one of those people in that country had guns, you'd be very polite too. Um, <laughs> I, I, that, that, uh, here I am remembering that decades later. So, yeah, there's an important element to being Eastern European that is uh, it creates an extra layer of complexity to everything, uh, whether you're talking politics, internal politics, foreign policy, economic considerations, business considerations. And it's the reality. I call it small country syndrome. It's the recognition that you are a small country and you don't have complete control over your fate. And any key decisions about how you want to live, how you want to organize your life, um, what you want to do, have to take into account what some of your neighbors, how they may react. And there's just that reality. Um, and so uh, it, it creates uh, a, a certain kind of complexity. Some of the more successful, both peoples and nations at different times and individuals have been able to man manage and even manipulate that. But the truth is, is a part of uh, being Eastern European is being able to manage the reality that you're between a rock and a hard place at all times. And that's just something that Western Europeans really don't understand. Don't have to, haven't had to deal with really to this, to this degree. Um, um, it sometimes can be advantageous and can be helpful because it means that uh, you learn to bring in outside powers or you learn to, uh, to involve other people more in what you're doing. Um, at other times, it more more often than not, it's a challenge. It's just an extra 
problem that you have to overcome. You see this today um, with the entire Ukraine question, regardless, you know, without getting into the weeds of what's happening and all that. Um, one of the, the, the fundamental questions that is being asked, that's being posed by what is happening is, does a country like Ukraine uh, and, and, for instance, also Sweden and Finland, traditionally not considered Eastern European countries, but they're being posed with a very Eastern European dilemma, which is Putin is telling them, you don't have the right to make a choice about whether you join NATO or not. Our security trumps yours. We're a great power. You're not. So you simply, you do as you're told. And that's the same thing. Does Ukraine have the right to join NATO or not? There's That's a question for NATO. They have to make their considerations about whether adding Ukraine adds to NATO security. And there's obviously a question for Russia to consider about what that means to have a NATO country that close to them. But it's a question for Ukraine as well. And that often is left out of, out of the thinking when you read our common press. But it's something that the Ukrainians are very used to. And it's a common problem. And it's one of the issues, it's one of the reasons you see such a visceral reaction uh, among the Eastern European states on the periphery, Poland, uh, the Baltic states in, in, in particular, um, because, in, in part because Putin has so actively threatened uh, over the past 20 years, the very existence he's uh, actually declared that the uh, the independence of uh, the, Balt- the three Baltic countries in 1991 um, was illegitimate by Soviet law. Uh, and so... Uh, and he's uh, done things like launch the uh, the cyber attack in 26 uh, against Estonia for removing a, a Soviet monument in downtown Tallinn. Uh, so there's a, a basic element of do you have the right to exist and do you have the right to uh, make decisions about your interests and your needs going forward? That's a part of the Eastern European dilemma. Well, following up on that, and and you've just touched on a number of things that I'd I'd like to sort of pursue in greater detail uh, in a minute. But first, I I I think that maybe the listeners building on this might find it useful to talk about how we can understand national identity in Eastern Europe, because in many cases these nations, some of which you've already mentioned, have only existed for short periods of time. And in other cases, their their national sovereignty has sort of come and gone depending on the era. So maybe with much of this, we're sort of would be going back to uh, mid-19th century and on from there. But could you perhaps pick apart uh, a couple of the narratives that, um, or, or, you know, sort of pick apart the region to offer us a couple of narratives that might um, explain national identity within this context of these empires who kind of sweep back and forth or countries that come into existence as a result of peace treaties and then disappear again or those kinds of things. Because I'm sure that many Western uh, European and North American listeners, particularly North American, where the boundaries, um, you know, uh, uh, white North Americans uh, imagine that the boundaries of their nations have always been where they are. Um, maybe you could talk a bit about that in the Eastern European context. Sure. It's, it is an important, and it's a, a definitive question really for Eastern Europe. So if we start with Western Europe, um, we can talk about, let's say, the border between France and Spain. Um, it was uh, 
in question over the 16th, uh, but finally towards the end of the 17th century, the, the border in the Pyrenees was finally sorted out, and it's pretty much been the border between France and Spain ever since. It actually isn't an ethnic border. There's the Basque people who span that border, but nevertheless, it's it's pretty much settled in everyone's mind where France is and where Spain is. Um, a, a similar issue would be the Dutch. You think of, if I say Dutch to you, you know what I'm talking about. You're thinking wooden clogs and herring and you know uh, uh, large uh, merchant ships. Uh, you know that's the windmills. That's the Dutch, right? Uh, but the reality is, is the Dutch um, are pretty much from the same pool of people that created the French, that created the Germans. And in fact, until about the late, somewhere in the mid 17th century, really, um, most Europeans considered the Dutch Germans. They were just a part of the larger Holy Roman Empire. Um, the language they spoke is very odd compared to modern uh, Hochdeutsch, the standard German, but it's actually very close to some of the German dialects in Saxony, just on the other side of the border from, from the Netherlands. Uh, so the story here is that Western Europe, again, Nubby Peninsula, it's at the end of the peninsula. It hasn't faced the 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 population, not just the political and the, the military pressures, but the uh, demographic pressures that Eastern Europe has had to deal with um, over the centuries. And so in Western Europe, you've had the solidification of both borders and also ethnic identities. So that concepts like French, Spanish, German, Dutch, these are pretty solidified. Again, from a genetic perspective, these people actually come from just a handful of, of the same pool of people. Um, but that doesn't matter. These, these identities have solidified and they're pretty widely accepted. In Eastern Europe, that's much less the case. We have much less institutional stability. It's more, a lot of the uh, structures, uh, political structures are more recent. And because of that, identities have been much more fluid. And as you said, some of them, even though some of the older ones, like being Polish, for instance, um, I have a uh, one of the useless trivia inserts that you mentioned that talks about uh, a couple people um, like um, uh, uh, like uh, Copernicus, for instance, someone everybody knows. To this day, nationalists in Poland and Germany argue, well, was this guy Polish or was he German? Um, it isn't as clear in understanding that. And part of the problem is the notions of identity have shifted, have changed a lot in Eastern Europe over time. So that um, in even as, as recently as the early 1800s, there were people calling themselves Polish who um, their native language wasn't Polish. They used it as, as uh, sort of an official language. They would write in Polish. They would speak in Polish when they would in, in an official capacity, but they'd go home and speak Belarusian or Lithuanian. Um, and, um, or, or Yiddish. So uh, the notions of Polishness um, over the 19th century, because of uh, Poland being conquered and, and being broken up uh, and ruled by foreigners, uh, then the, the whole notion of Polish ethnicity changed radically. Um, and for instance, one of the, the side effects of that was in 18th century Poland, you had uh, a very large presence of Protestant faiths in Poland. But in the 19th century, the Roman Catholic Church became really strongly associated with Polskość, it's called Polishness. Um, so um, the notions of what it means to be in, in these ethnic groups has really solidified and changed radically in recent years. And probably one of the best places to go if you're interested in this is Ukraine. It's an area that has um, really um, 
uh, changed in, in how it has been perceived both internally by the peoples that today we're calling Ukrainian, uh, but as well by the outside. The, the name Ukra- Ukraine comes from Ukraina. It's a Slavic. Krai means country and Ukraina kind of means something like the borderland of the border country, the, the out there country. Um, and it was, that was just meant uh, by Poles and Germans, or I'm sorry, Poles and Russians. It, referred to the fact that neither of them could really control Ukraine very well. Uh, so that's that's how they referred to it. But um, you see a huge shift just this year, um, as some ethnographers are starting to write about already, with this war where um, you see uh, people who speak Russian at home um, living in Ukraine who uh, are starting to consider themselves Ukrainians because of this war? They're, they're suddenly being forced to make a very de- you know decision between am I Russian? In other words, with along with the Russian nation, uh, even though I'm a Ukrainian citizen, or am I Ukrainian? Even though I speak Russian, I have Russian. I literally have family in Russia, um, and there's been this huge shift of ethnic Russians. And in fact, a lot of the militias that are aiding the Ukrainian army in places like Kherson. Uh, Kharkiv that you're seeing out in the east in Donbass, most of these are, are majority ethnic Russian-speaking militias fighting for Ukraine, and it's changed that identity. So um, the the important element there is that um, what it means to define an ethnic group, what it means to be Hungarian or, or Lithuanian or Polish or Ukrainian, uh, has been far more fluid. And because of that, that's created political headaches because you've had great powers that could say, just a few years ago, you behave this way or you were identified this way. Um, in the 1897 Russian census, the very first state census for Russia, they referred to Ukrainians as Malo, Malo uh little Russians. <laughs> um, that, that was how they were, they were called. Um, and, and there were some Ukrainians, people who we now call Ukrainians in the early 20th century, who identified that way, who saw themselves as little Russians, very literally. So um, it's important because uh, it has an impact on how politics has played out in the region. And it has an impact on, you know, again, and today being the most dramatic example where people are literally willing to pick up guns and fight against family, relatives, uh, over this sense of, um, Ukraine is something separate. It's different than what Russia is. And, and just to not to go down a rabbit hole here, but an important part of what's different between Russia and Ukraine is they both come from this this uh, early civilization that uh, is called Kievan Rus in English um, that existed from about the 800, let's say, to about tw- the early 1200s. And um, it was an Eastern Slavic civilization, um, and it uh, was huge, powerful. It, its capital was the city of uh, Kiev, uh, what is today the, the Ukrainian capital. Um, and it, it was the civilization that brought Eastern Orthodox Christianity to the East. It adopted the Cyrillic alphabet for the, the Eastern Slavic language. And then through a long story, I'm not going to get into it, ended up being broken in half. In the Western half, you have... In the south, the Ukrainians, and in the north, the Belarusians. And just because they were separated from their eastern brethren, they ended up over centuries becoming different peoples. In the east, you had, as the east was able to recover, and it took centuries, out of that, Russia arose. And Russia claimed... Uh, the early Russian rulers in the late 1400s, over the 1500s, claimed, we are the revived... uh, 
we we are that that Eastern civilization that that Kievan Rus. We are the revived Kievan Rus, and we're going to rebuild it, and we're going to collect all the old Kievan Rus lands again. It's kind of like if you think about it's like Italy today saying we are the sole legitimate heir to the Roman Empire. So France, Spain, Portugal, we have no right to speak those those you know bastardized Latinized languages. You should all learn Italian. We're the only legitimate post-Roman civilization, you should all be like Italy. That's kind of what Russia has been doing, declaring itself to be the sole heir. Um, and what you're seeing today is this, and again, getting to identity, this Ukrainian notion of, you know what, being Ukrainian isn't just about the, you know, having these certain ancestors. It means believing in this view of what a modern descendant of that Kievan Rus civilization can be. We can be democratic. We can have a relatively free market economy. We can be open to the world. We don't have to be like Russia. They are not the only way to be a, a former post-Kievan Rus civilization. Right. And, and it, other ways, I mean, focusing on the, the sort of linguistic and ethnic um, ties and therefore the narratives that draw on that, um, there's also a real um, uh, tangible uh, political machinations, particularly in the 20th century, that complicate all of this in that whole region, aren't there? I mean, uh, the uh, you know the creation of Czechoslovakia out of uh, the peace treaty you know as the as the um, you have both the the Germans and the Austrians on the losing side and so all of the lines get redrawn which as we know if you're not a country for very long uh, it's hard to get respect it's hard to have anybody consider those those borders to be um, inviolable the way that one would perhaps be more likely to consider the the ba- boundary between um, between uh, uh, France and Spain, um, and so I imagine that that is part of what is uh, definitely going on uh, in uh, in Ukraine, you know, in the in this situation as well. Is that well, if you've only been a country for twenty years or so. Uh, or thirty years or so, it's it, it's a bit harder to um, uh, to have it look like a crime when those boundaries are are disrespected. Uh, a, a story um, that sort of illustrates this is um, when Poland, so World War One is over, but the Paris Peace Conference hasn't taken place yet, and you have generally conceptually. Europe accepts that the German, the Russian, the the um, Austro-Hungarian, and the Ottoman empires are, are history. They're gone. And so there's going to be these new Eastern European states. There's going to be a Poland. There's going to be a Czechoslovakia, as you said. Um, but where are the borders? Nobody's quite sorted that out. And so immediately uh, the fighting starts. Um, and there's this little town. So the, the border today between Poland and Slovakia, uh, is uh, basically through the mountains, the Tatar Mountains, um, and and the very there's a part of the the Czech Republic that also touches that. And right there, there's a little town that in Polish is called Cheshun, uh, is called Cheshun, and uh, by the Czechs, the Germans called it Teshun. Um, and it's just a little mining town. Now it's kind of economically important um, for because of the the coal mining that goes on there. But there's also it's it's. Um, in the entranceway through one of the few passes that go through the mountains between what would then be Poland and Czechoslovakia. So um, the local town actually got together. The, it's ethnically divided between Poles and Czechs. 
with some Germans. Um, because the Germans had just lost the war, everybody ignored them. So that, that didn't matter. Uh, but the Poles and the Czechs got together, and they basically divided the town equitably between the two countries and said, you know, this that way we both benefit, nobody gets to dominate, we both have economic assets, most of our respective communities are in our respective countries, everybody's happy. Both Prague and Warsaw completely rejected that agreement. Both said, no, we, we completely control that town. Um, the, uh, the Poles, uh, there was nothing either could do about it for a while. They both just started printing maps saying it's ours. Um, in, uh, 1919, in early 1919, there were elections in Poland and local political parties or the, the national po- political parties started putting posters up around Cheshire. Um, and this infuriated the Czechs who or the Czechoslovaks, I should say, who immediately sent an army in and seized the town. And then finally, two years later, the West just accepted that and it became part of Czechoslovakia. Uh, but then a few, two decades later, Hitler destroys Czechoslovakia and Poland in this bizarre moment of nationalist idiocy. And I speak of both someone who had family in Poland at the time still, uh, decided to take the opportunity to seize Cheshire back from the Czechoslovaks. Uh, today, the town, most of it is in Poland, but it's been repartitioned sort of somewhat more intelligently. And uh, luckily, today, that town is, uh, uh, it uses that history to bridge, uh, to create bridges between Poles and Czechs today. So it's actually a place where you can go and learn about the history of both communities and both countries and basically sort of revel in the, the genuine stupidity that <laughs> led to so much uh, political economic disruption for the town. Oh, that's really interesting. That's, and I'm sure that for, for that, that that is not the only one. I bet you that we could probably find ones along many, many uh, once upon a time boundaries that have switched back and forth. Uh, the, the British historian... Um, uh, Eric Hobsbawm, he mentions if you lived in this town that the Hungarian call, Hungarians call Munkac, I think it's called Munkacevo today in Ukraine, in far western Ukraine, if you lived in that town between 1900 and 2000, so a century long, um, you would have five different passports from five different countries. Uh, the borders just kept changing, and that town was always in the middle, in the way. So Right, right. Well, now, turning our attention a bit more to the the, the sort of specifics of current circumstances, um, I wanted to, uh, because of course, I didn't want to orient our entire conversation around the relationship between countries, other countries and Russia. But uh, I think it would be uh interesting and useful to our listeners to kind of turn our, ourselves there now. So in addition to the invasion of Ukraine first in 2014 and then this year, um, listeners are probably also aware that many other nations that share a border with Russia today, the Baltic states, Finland uh, and Moldova, um, are also feeling increasingly vulnerable and that others, such as Serbia and Hungary, are supporting Russia's aggression. So what does the listener need to know in order to understand the differences in reactions and, I guess, therefore, sort of the relationship between these countries 
historically, um, and Russia. Uh, okay, so a good part to start, a good place to start um, would be, and assuming most of, of your listeners are going to be Americans and Canadians, is um, for us here in North America, when you say this word war, um, what comes to mind is us sending our troops somewhere else. And it's us over time having to learn funny foreign names where they're fighting, whether it's in France or in you know the Pacific uh, or in the Middle East or in Southeast Asia. We have... This you know, in our popular culture, these all these names like Fallujah or Jin Ben Fu that, that are a part of our cultural history because of that experience. From the Eastern European experience, when you say war, it's um, you know, story. And I'm, this is a very literal of, of my grandmother having to, to cower under a table in her kitchen with the grandchildren while you know there were bullets going ripping through uh, the the uh, the house. Um, war is what happens here. It's it's it comes here, and again, going back to that great power element that we were talking about earlier, where the the reality of having to exist as small countries and accept that others have control over some of your decisions, that's the extreme end of that experience. And um, people my age, uh, which is shocking, I was born in 1968, but I'm barely out of my twenties. Don't know why, but um, <laughs> but for people my age whose parents and grandparents experienced World War II very directly, um, we grew up hearing horror stories of what that that was like, and it was these were stories that couldn't be shared in histories because of the communist periods often, but we heard those very personal uh, stories of our families, of the neighbors, of people they knew, and what happened to them, and so um, this has created a sort of, and it's it's kind of a, a collective cultural trauma that was handed down the experience of World War II. And you have to remember that in Eastern Europe, it was first the German invasions that came from the West and then the Soviet invasion that came from the East. And the Soviet invasion came as both, for some people at least, as a liberation, a very genuine liberation, but then almost immediately. So when they entered, the Soviet army entered Poland in 1944, they immediately began, yes, they defeated the Germans, but they also immediately began mass arrests of locals, um, began uh, dismantling local governments, local cultural institutions that had survived, the local resistance movements, executing, imprisoning. People just disappeared into Siberian exiles. Um, and they entered a new phase of imperial control, essentially. So there's this memory that all of us, uh, have, even for those of us who were born 25 years after the war, um, but it was still an omnipresent element uh, uh, in our lives. And so um, uh, this is why, particularly in Poland and in the Baltic countries, you're seeing so many people reaching out and helping Ukrainian refugees, um, some, you know, uh, close to 6 million, almost 2 million, 2 million of them in Poland alone. Can you imagine 2 million people showing up even here in the United States or in Canada suddenly within, you know, about two months time, how would we deal with that? They are dealing with that right now in Poland. And one of the reasons, despite there are always frictions and that, that is real. And, and there are historical frictions between Poles and Ukrainians, quite frankly, but all of that, despite all of that, one of the reasons so many people are reaching out is precisely because of these memories they're recognizing as they're seeing the news of what's happening today in Ukraine. These are the same stories that my parents and my grandparents told me. They told me about all of this. We've been through this. We understand that. And so there's a very visceral reaction to that that is uh, really 
compelling uh, behind how Eastern Europe is reacting. Now, you mentioned two important examples, uh, uh, Serbia and Hungary. Serbia is a little easier to unpack. Um, Serbia had a very different experience of the war while it was World War II. While it was um, extremely traumatic for Syria, the truth is, is most of that trauma was internal. It wasn't really, yes, it was a German invasion. It was violent and the Germans behaved very badly, but it also, what it did is uh, when the Germans destroyed pre-war Yugoslavia, it, it broke the bonds, the political bonds between the many Yugoslav peoples and most, most Yugoslav citizens, about a million uh, died in the war. Most of them died actually fighting internecine civil wars between each other rather than fighting against the Germans. Um, and so uh, the, that's the first part. The second part is the Soviets didn't play a big role in liberating Yugoslavia. They participated in the liberation of Belgrade uh, somewhat and then just moved on. Um, where So Yugoslavia never experienced the post-war occupation by Soviet uh, forces. And this allowed, especially in Serbian minds, uh, a very warm, brotherly memory of the experience of the war with the Soviet Union. Um, and even with the political break in 1948 between Yugoslavia and Stalin, um, uh, it, it still helped create a sense that these are our brothers you know, in Europe. These are the few friends we have. There was a historical, going back to the 19th century, a historical relationship between Russia and Serbia. It, it actually, that relationship played a role in, in World War, in the, the beginning of World War I, actually. Um, and that uh, coupled with the uh, Yugoslav, I call them the Yugoslav implosion wars of the 1990s, uh, as, as apparently you're dealing with as well, um, the experience of the NATO confrontations over Bosnia and then particularly over Kosovo, um, that, uh, that trauma that, uh, well, it wasn't, we weren't bombing cities. NATO wasn't bombing, you know, Yugoslav cities. There were some civilian casualties, but it was, it was a painful experience to face a modern military and to be very so soundly defeated. So even though Milosevic himself was not really terribly popular, even in Serbia, um, he ended up being overthrown when he, when he faked an election a few years after that, still, um, there was that experience of being defeated by an outside power, by a great power, again, a very common Eastern European experience that Serbians have internalized, and they're struggling with that today. Um, if you're following the news nowadays, um, there's apparently a war going on in Belgrade between uh, people who are painting pro-Russian slogans on buildings around the city, and then people who are going around and and copying those over with pro-Ukrainian. So they're, they're having trouble dealing with the pro-Russian element of their traditional political outlook and the, the, the recognizing what Ukraine is experiencing, that they themselves have experienced in their history. So there's a struggle there. Politically, the government under Vucic is definitely pro-Russian, mostly because um, uh, for a lot of political reasons, his trouble with the European Union, he's sort of schizophrenic about whether he wants to join the European Union or not. Uh, but he's largely relying um, on a pro-Russian stance. He's tried to become, uh, again, the traditional Eastern European uh, uh, effect of looking for friends. He's tried to become a Chinese ally, a big Chinese ally in Europe. Um, and it, it's gone to an extent that's made many Serbians uncomfortable. Uh, but uh, 
that kind of explains where Serbia is and why they're reacting. Hungary is very different. Hungary has no historical relationship with Russia that's positive. The few times that Hungary and Russia have dealt with each other during the Hungarian War of Independence in 1848 and 49, that ended with a Russian invasion that crushed the Hungarian rebels. Again, during the Soviet period, you have a repeat of that in 1956. So Hungarians don't have positive memories of Russia. It's one guy, the leader, Viktor Orban. He personally, for some strange reasons, and I've dealt with his circle of people going back to the late 80s and the 90s when the first political parties were forming in Hungary. And I have a lot of friends who knew him and were working with him back then. Um, He's just a a very specific person himself. That's another talk unto itself. But he's the one who's had to dance a very thin line. Um, He's tried to couch his support for Russia in terms of, well, this is Hungarian independence. I'm just guaranteeing Hungary's uh, freedom of action and our economic independence by not relying too much on the European Union. That's the excuse he's using. But the truth is, is the the overwhelming number of support of the Hungarian society lies with the Ukrainians. They look at what Ukraine is going through and they they recognize that experience as well. So, um, uh, but that has led to, so for instance, before this war, uh, Poland was on a similar path, though, for very different reasons, uh, but on a path that uh, was sort of anti-European Union. Again, there's, there's reasons for behind that, but they're very different from Orbán's in Hungary. Um, but you could see the brick wall that that hit uh, recently with this Russian war. Orbán is still trying to be pro-Russian as much as he can be. Kaczynski in Poland... There's no way that any poll is ever going to be pro-Russian. And uh, Poland has obviously been aggressive. Just yesterday, Duda, the, our, our prime minister, was, was in uh, uh, Warsaw, and uh, he uh, gave a very roaring speech, uh, pro-Ukrainian speech. So um, the, the reaction that most Eastern, Eastern Europeans have, and this includes Moldova, uh, is that the, you know this is precisely the kind of thing that we thought was done after World War II and done after the Cold War. Um, this is the kind of behavior that we thought that Europe had, was finished with. And it's, you know, without going down a rabbit hole, it's something that Russia doesn't recognize, that Western and Central Europe have undergone a huge transformation. And to some degree, Eastern Europe is already on that path over the past 20 years. We live in a world today where, which is shocking to, you know, to, to my ancestors, that, you know, Poles today, even the worst nationalists, don't fear a German invasion. Poles and Germans today live in relative cooperation. My wife is is a Pole from Poland, and she, her family's from Silesia. Um, they have no problem celebrating their town's German heritage right alongside the Polish. That is a different Europe. Well, now, I mean, that's all uh, absolutely fascinating. I think it's it, it's a a very um, nice sort of survey and overview of how so many different countries can have. Uh, uh, such different relationships with Russia and for a number of different reasons. For my final question, I, I'd like to now turn our attention to Russia. Um, in chapter seven of your book, which is simply called War! Exclamation point, uh, you provide some infographics that I think really help to sum up Russia's cultural mindset since World War II, whether as the Soviet Union or as the Russian Federation. Putin has repeatedly framed the current war 
using the language and summoning up the ghosts of that previous one, World War II, even 80 years on. Could you remind the listener of the sacrifices and losses that Russia experienced in World War II and maybe explain how they were remembered and understood in the Soviet Union under Stalin and Khrushchev and, and later leaders, Soviet leaders, and then how they're remembered and understood or, or kind of, I guess, um, characterized by Putin in Russia today. Yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting story. And uh, I think this is a type of thing that uh, history classes, this very specific question, um, we'll be examining going forward. So uh, very briefly, uh, so the section you mentioned at the beginning of that chapter, um, I put some graphics together to sort of illustrate um, how different World War II is perceived in what in Eastern Europe versus Western Europe. And the simple, easiest way to put it is um, the vast majority of European fatalities and casualties and material destruction of the war happened in Eastern Europe, not Western Europe, despite all the movies we have in here in, in the West about, you know, the French resistance and et cetera. And I don't want to belittle those experiences, but the truth is, is um, something in the order of more than three quarters of all the people in Europe who died in world war two died in Eastern Europe. And of, and you're looking only at the civilian population. It's in the magnitude of about 90% of all the European civilians who died in world war two were Eastern Europeans. Only 10% were in Western Europe. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons behind that, but uh, essentially the war happened very differently there and it was far more destructive and a lot more innocent people died. Um, from the Soviet perspective, um, it was a few different things. First, it was um, Stalin's gross mishandling of just about everything at the beginning, leading in the years leading up to the war, so that the Soviet Union was about as unprepared as it could possibly be. Um, and when the war did unfold, that meant that they lost tremendous amounts of men and people and material and territory very quickly. And, you know, within months, um, most of the European side of Russia was under Nazi control, and and the Nazis were literally up to the gates of Moscow itself. Um, but it's an incredible story and an impressive story of uh, the turnaround. Now. The, they were saved by territory in part. There's also Lend-Lease. We gave them huge amounts of critical war materials. But nevertheless, there is the important Soviet dimension and Soviet sacrifice that's incredible. Read about the siege of Leningrad um, that, that uh, Putin's own family, parents, went through. Uh, he reportedly lost a brother who starved to death uh, in, in Leningrad. His mother was left for dead at one point but survived. Um so again, going back to the whole personal experience thing that all Eastern Europeans have, and yet, and yet, you get to 1945, and the Soviet Union is among the triumphant allies. Um, so there's this element of holy crap, we didn't lose, and and we're actually we won. Um, there was that part of the experience um, that that helped, you know. Um, helped uh, shape how, how Soviets and Russians, and I'm going to make a distinction between those two, um, how they think about the war. Um, it also gave, um, for a lot of Soviet 
and and I mean that in a broader sense, the many ethnicities of the Soviet Union. It gave them a sense of ownership in the Soviet Union. We fought for this. Our, you know, and and by the way, you see this with the Ukrainians. Um, there's a lot of anger today if you if you read Ukrainian responses to Russian propaganda about the war, you'll see that one of the things they say, they point out is that, you know, it wasn't just ethnic Russians, ethnic Ukrainians are fighting in this war. We lost percentage wise, the same number of people. Our cities were destroyed. Kiev was leveled. You know, we were just as much as a part of that story. And we own that story as much as you do too. Um, But uh, the Soviet Union used that to, uh, it, it, up until this point, uh, in the 1930s um, in Europe, the Soviet Union was considered a radical outlier power. It wasn't considered a major power when, when negotiations happened across Europe that were important economic or political. The Soviet Union was not considered, was not a part of those. Um, world War II happens, and suddenly the Soviet Union is seen as a world power and this is and it has to be taken seriously and suddenly events happening anywhere else in the world south america asia there's a dimension of those that has to go through moscow that has the their interests have to be taken into consideration uh and and the cold war just emphasized it. it 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 just uh magnified that element and so you have this canonization of the experience of World War II. You have the the May ninth uh, 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 Victory Day parades that now everybody knows about um, through Moscow with the Lenin Mausoleum with all the old rusting generals and the you know general secretaries waving, uh, kind of like the Queen as all the the troops pass. Um, and that becomes only the second most important, the only holiday that's more important in the Soviet Union is the, the Great October Revolution Day, uh, November 7th in, in our calendar. Um, but an important thing with Putin, who um, he um, was a KGB officer in East Germany in the mid-80s, 1980s, and he personally very directly experienced the collapse of both the East German regime and Soviet power throughout Eastern Europe. And this was reportedly, as he himself has said, it was very traumatic to himself. Um, he seems to have internalized that experience. Um, I'm comparing it to um, what Germans went through after 1918 with the defeat of, of World War One. how um, some Germans, because Germany, except for the rural region, wasn't actually occupied by the Western, uh, the victorious Western powers, um, German nationalists over the 1920s were able to say, you know, we weren't really defeated. We're actually on the verge of victory. It was just some people in the German government who stabbed us in the back by negotiating defeat because they had business interests in the West. They blame leftists and socialists and communists and liberals and Jews, of course, Um that narrative, the 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 um the stab in the back, um, really served to uh, fuel German resentment at that defeat, and it helped build the narrative that would eventually put someone like Hitler in power in 1933. You see something like that with Putin as well, where he sees the collapse of the Soviet Union in that same sense, and he internalizes it and reaches back to the Soviet victory of World War II as the good times, as the time when we were taken seriously, we were important, the whole world respected us and feared us, and that's the narrative he's been trying to rebuild, and he uses the the memories of World War II. Um, And and by the way, there are quite a few Russians, um, if you go and... I don't want to point you to anyone in particular, but there are many Russian commentators, social commentators who talked about this, who grew up 
um, and felt very rightfully proud of that Soviet victory and, and really look forward to the, the May 9th uh, parades. Uh, and they had family members who fought, of course. 27 million people died uh, in, in the, you know, of the Soviet Union, died in that war. Um, so it's difficult to find somebody who didn't have a family member who wasn't killed and wasn't involved in the fighting in some way. Um, so it's a very personal thing for them. Uh, but they've watched over the Putin years, over the past 20 years, as that uh, those World War II commemorations came to be um, something of a uh, make Russia great again type of movement. Uh, and it became uh, sort of uh, hagiographed, hagio, is that it? Um, where um, uh, he made uh, this, this holy element around that experience and declared that he was trying to rebuild Russia in that image and in, in what that Soviet Union had been. The problem is, is in many respects, he's repeating the, even though he's not really a communist himself, He's repeating many of the Soviet mistakes in politics and in the economy, including antagonizing all of his neighbors like he's doing dramatically with Ukraine right now. Um, but that experience of World War II, if you were born in, if you were my age or younger and were born in either the Soviet Union or in, after 1991, you were born in Russia, um, you grew up with that omnipresent backstory that was just surrounding you. Just like here in the U.S., you get Columbus and George Washington in Canada, you, you know, you get Macmillan and, and et cetera, um, and uh, Trudeau. Uh, the... Um, that World War II narrative is just sewn into the fabric of what it means to be Russian. I'm saying Russian. That's important. Um, part of the Putin narrative is not that this was also a Soviet. It was a Russian victory. And he excludes many of the peoples, the Soviet peoples, who were a part of that victory, who up until recently or still today say that, no, this we, we own that as well. That's a part of us. Our, our you know, my grandparents or parents fought in that war or suffered in that war right alongside yours. Um, but if you read Putin's um, uh, excuse for this war, that when he issued the statement saying, you know, this is why we're invading Ukraine, it's riddled with World War II language and memory. Yes, and, and thank you, because I think that that helps uh, our listeners to understand why and why that is uh, indeed so remains so potent uh, as part of the Russian sense of self. Yeah. Well, Tomek, it's been it's been a real pleasure uh, talking to you. Thank you so much for uh, joining me uh, today. I want to remind our uh, listeners again that uh Tomek Jankowski is the uh, author of Eastern Europe, Everything You Need to Know About the History and More of a Region that Shaped Our World and Still Does. Its uh, second edition is out now. Uh, thank you, Tomek, for, for talking to me today. Yeah, thanks once again for the opportunity. It's been fun.